Welcome to Mint. My name is Adam Levy, and I'm going to be showing you how the creators of today are building the communities of tomorrow by harnessing the power of Web3. This episode welcomes Spencer Graham, who's a core contributor at Dow House, where he helps with product development, internal operations, communications, and tokenomics. He's been contributing full-time to Dow since 2020 and introduces a solid foundation around product development in Web3. I wanted to have him on because the gang at Dow House is experimenting with a new fundraising vehicle that they applied on themselves and now are making more publicly accessible to others in Web3. They call it Community Contribution Opportunity or CCOs for short, uh, which basically is a new fundraising vehicle uh, that we'll explore more in depth as the episode unfolds. So without further ado, in this episode, we discuss DAOs and DAO House. We talk about community contribution opportunities, aka CCOs, the difference between CCOs and ICOs, what are the cons of CCOs, and so much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Spencer, welcome to Mint. How are you doing, my friend? Thanks for being on. I am doing very well. Thanks for having me, Adam. It's exciting to be here. I know. Season four, Big Bang came out on Twitter a little bit ago. Uh, so I'm excited to cover kind of what's happening at Dow House, uh, you as a product builder in Web3, and this new CCO uh, funding vehicle that you guys are kind of like constructing internally that we'll talk a little bit about more later. But before we go into all that, let's start with the basics. Who are you? What does the world need to know about you? But more specifically, what were you doing before crypto? Yeah, I think that's a good place to start. Um, so, well, I'm I'm Spencer. Uh, I, um, for for a long time, have been you know quite interested in in technology and in economics and in in psychology. That's kind of where, from like an educational background, that's where you know what what I focused on kind of centers. And that took me into in a few different places, in a few different directions, um, but ultimately into into product management. Um, you know, working on building products, understanding what users need, understanding the the industry and the dynamics of of what's going on around in in the broader space, um, that sort of thing. And I so I but also on the side, I was just interested in in technology and had been. Um, you know, learning about a little bit and aware of Bitcoin and Ethereum, uh, et cetera, for maybe maybe a couple of years, and I kind of been growing in in interest, especially in, in Ethereum. Um, but it was really in in my job as a product manager at a healthcare company, um, where I started to really like internalize the power and the opportunity and the interestingness of of crypto and, and especially uh, Ethereum at the time. Uh, and that was that was really brought on or like kind of forced <laughs> forced forced to me by starting to really understand the structure of at least in the US the healthcare industry and how all of that stuff works or more accurately doesn't work because all of the incentives are so so utterly backwards and they're so utterly backwards because all of the the data that gets generated about an individual person, about you, the patient, is not owned or controlled by you. Instead, it's owned and controlled by all of these dif- disparate organizations that sort of are fighting tooth and nail to maintain like their silo of that really valuable information. And that there's many other reasons, but that's a key one that the healthcare industry doesn't work. And I started to see how a like shared distributed database 
where that stuff could be more accessible to everybody else, but still maintain uh, the proper incentives to make everything work would be super powerful. And that's re really what kind of took me way, way down the, the rabbit hole. Um, and several steps in between, but but now I'm here today. Now here we are. So you, you mentioned building stuff that people need. Okay, so for starters, what's it like being a product person in Web3? And what do people need in crypto? It's a very vague question, but <laughs> intentionally, right? Intentionally intended to be vague. From your point of view, what, what does that look like? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll get to the second question, maybe maybe second, because I think that's a much much harder one. Uh, the, the first one is also hard um, in, in, in the sense of what is it like to be a, a product person in, in Web3? Um, in, in one sense, it's actually not very different from being a product person in, in Web2 um, in, in the sense that a lot of product people are used to leading not by like uh, dictation or not by kind of their own power, but by more by influence. They kind of sit in the middle of a lot of different work streams and a lot of different people and functions and, and diff different skills. And they are sort of tasked with leading that group and providing a vision for, for that distributed set of people doing lots of different things and kind of getting buy-in from all those different people. So in, in that sense, there's, there's actually a lot of similarities. Like we're in a, in a Web3 product setting or in a DAO setting, um, if you're building stuff with other people, you, you don't have power over them. You really only have have in influence. Um, and that influence comes from you know, being incredibly knowledgeable um, and having like, both good, good understanding and also good intuition about how things work and being like, willing to iterate and experiment uh, alongside the people um, that you're working with. So that's, that part's actually really quite similar. And, and I think a lot of product people are probably pretty well equipped to, to make the, the, the jump from Web 2 uh, to Web 3 for that reason. Um, where there is a big difference is the vision part. Like a lot of product people are kind of used to, they're the ones setting the setting the vision and articulating everything. And that can maybe kind of work in, in Web3, but it's more about helping the people that you're working with, helping the DAO or helping your project, helping all the other contributors that you're working with mm -hmm. kind of collectively arrive at the collective vision, not kind of dictating what your vision is and making that, like instilling that into the product or the team, but rather facilitating and drawing that out of the community and, and yourself and, and the other contributors. Got it. Got it. So when you kind of were starting to build products uh, in crypto, what was the first product you kind of worked on? The very first product I worked on was um, something sort of kind of maybe still working on today. A little, it had been a little bit of, of a hiatus, but it was a hackathon project at uh, East Denver 2020 that I did with a, with a few other folks. Um, and that uh, was called Save Die. Um, and the basic idea was uh, combining, essentially creating a liquid form of a, like a, a trustless liquid form of an FDIC insured savings account. So combining the interest bearing qualities of something like CDI, die deposited into compound and earning interest with um, tokenized uh, DeFi style insurance on on compound and die. So if if something happened like a hack on compound or uh, some uh, some economic or financial issue with with die, then you'd essentially get the the value of 
uh, of what you held back. Um, and putting like basically combining that into a single asset that you could trade around or transfer or whatever. Got it. Got it. So how did that transition into you kind of working alongside Dow House? And what is Dow House? Like what, what does the world need to know about it? It's just for some context really quick. Yeah. Um, so we've gone through a lot of iterations on how to describe Dow House, but I think the one that stuck for me has been that, that Dow House is the home for purpose-driven community DAOs. And that can mean a lot of different things, but at its core, Dow House is a, a platform, a no-code, just user-oriented platform to form DAOs, so launch them or deploy them, or as we call them, as we call it, summon DAOs. And then also to participate in and use DAOs to accomplish the goals that you and your community have. Mm -hmm. And when we say purpose-driven communities, we mean um, DAOs that are focused on like lifting up the individual people within those communities as a collective, rather than what some other DAOs do, which is also very powerful, powerful, which is putting a priority on the on the protocol or the DAO itself rather than the individual mm. people. Got it. So what are the types of DAOs building uh, and using DAO House today? Like, uh, name so, yeah, so some of the original ones are um, DAOs like Raid Guild, which is sort of like Web3 mm-hmm. Design Dev Services DAO. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the original is MetaCartel. Um, so kind of Web3 uh, Ethereum Grants DAO. Um, uh, another one is is ourselves, uh, Dow House. Um, there's a number of different iterations of it or, or flavors of it, but kind of mm-hmm. a Dow created to build a Dow platform. Um, others include Metagamma Delta, um, which is sort of a, a, a Dow that that exists to support women and what they want to do in the space and kind of advance their their goals and bring more women into the space. Um, uh, there's also uh, kind of in, in a very different sense. There's a, a DAO that is on XDAI called, or I guess now called Gnosis Chain, uh, called mm-hmm. uh, Perion DAO, which is oriented around uh, allowing people to pool their resources and collectively stake into different protocols. So um, they're go- they're currently have been staking as an XDAI validator and are going to be transitioning into doing so as a Gnosis Chain uh, validator as well. So the runs a wide gamut um, or there's a wide range of things, but they're all kind of tied together or similar in the sense that they are focused on, on, on the community that's, that makes up the DAO. Got it. What are the biggest challenges right now facing you as a product person uh, trying to empower these DAO communities? Like what, what does that look like? How do you, how do you kind of, I guess not really discover them, but how do you build for their problems? Because DAOs are very, very early. Right, I, like yeah. there's been a lot of hype about them in 2021, uh, yeah. but still, we've yet to see more mainstream organizations and DAOs and in voting kind of take control of uh, of like not just the early adoption curve per se, right? So when you're trying to build products for DAOs, what does that look like in your sphere? What are the biggest problems facing DAOs right now that need better product and tooling? Uh, walk me a little bit about uh, a little bit through that. Yeah, I think the one of our big challenges is the tension between focusing focusing on building a platform that allows other developers or other people to build specific tools for DAOs and trying to or starting to build some of those tools ourselves. 
kind of when when we started when when Dow House started, there was not really this huge, awesome or like growing infrastructure space for like Dow tooling that didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were kind of thinking like, how can we do a lot of this stuff ourselves? And we had already started thinking about this this concept of boosts or like um, plugins or add-ons for for DAOs where they could add like pull in this boost from over here and add functionality to what they need to do as a DAO and pull in this other thing from over here. But we were thinking about it largely from the perspective of um, maybe we'll build we can build these things and then people can can use them selectively as they like. But but more and more, as we have seen so many awesome DAO tools starting to be developed, and for like some developers just focusing on a single small slice of of what DAOs need to do, much in the same way that like lots of different companies in the Web two space are focused on a single small slice of what um, of what companies or corporations need to do, and that's essentially the entire SaaS uh, marketplace. Is is that? Um, We've been transitioning more towards creating a, like focusing on a platform, almost building like an like an operating system that other developers can build on top of, and and really focus in on, go deep on the individual like very specific narrowly defined problem spaces that that DAOs are facing. Uh, there are a ton of those, so it's very difficult for us to to be thinking about. It doesn't make sense, I think, for us as DAO House to try to. Build build for those or solve all those problems right. it makes much more sense for us to facilitate others to do so in a way that helps DAOs and, and provides a cohesive experience. Now, are these tools that help start a DAO? Are these tools that help scale a DAO? Are these tools that help with participation? What are some of like the biggest problems that tools are trying to solve right now that would be a good fit? For example, like DAO House. Um, sorry, are you asking uh, what is DAO House a good fit for, or or the other way around? Like, rather, rather, we're talking about the ecosystem of tools, right? Yep. And you're talking about the granularity of tools being built for organizations, some smaller than others, some larger than others, okay? These tools that are being built right now, they're obviously construct, like you guys are trying to build it in a way where it's composable enough so developers can kind of build for these communities, right? What are the biggest problems facing these communities right now that you're seeing that tool providers and tool builders are trying to solve? Yeah. Um, a big one is, that, well, the, the the three things you described, uh, forming, participating, and scaling, are definitely all very big. Like, there's problems everywhere. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. As you as you mentioned, we're we're still very early, and everybody's trying to figure everything out. A big one that I've started to see people thinking a lot about is compensation, um, and kind of incentivization. So maybe that's kind of a form of of scaling in a sense, um, where where maybe instead of scaling in terms of size, it's it's scaling in terms of impact or or power, given a, a constant size or a slowly growing size. Where DAOs are moving from, or are try are trying to move from kind of a, a a collection of people that have come together to do something, and are kind of internally motivated to work on that thing to like powering up and expanding their their capacities to like bring in people and and allow people to spend even more time doing that because they're getting paid in a consistent potentially consistent way in or in a way that's sustainable for them i think a lot of DAOs are are grappling with that and there's a lot of there's a lot of like treasury management stuff embedded in there like 
can you pay people just with your just with the token that your your DAO is using or is might be defined right. by? Um, so it all kind of gets tangled together. Um, so in one sense, it could be very challenging to compose things, but I think that's that's really the strength of, of Web3 and, and the way that all of this technology and, and ethos work. So I think we're, all of us in the DAO space, I think we're on the right path. It'll take a lot of work, but, yeah. but slowly but surely we'll get there. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I want to transition into, because we're already speaking about like, tooling we're speaking about uh um payments we're speaking about like more money related stuff i want to transition into this concept that you guys are tinkering with uh and i don't know if it's public yet maybe this is the first time we're actually talking about it publicly but this concept of ccos and you, you coin it community contribution opportunity okay give me give me a quick deep dive what is a cco why is it important uh and what are you guys trying to achieve excuse me uh by issuing this new i guess fundraising vehicle yeah, uh, so we're, we are pretty, pretty, very excited about about CCOs. Um, C, so this is probably one of the first formal ways that that we're talking about it. We are going to have a an article coming up very shortly, maybe this week, maybe early next week, that goes into a lot more, a uh, lot more detail about how the process works and why we think it's important and and um, how to get started, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so. We'll try to try to get you a link if if the timing works out. Um, but we also used uh, we used this or something very very similar to this mechanism about a year or maybe fifteen or so months ago to kind of kickstart our our own our own work in a in a more serious way that had been previously possible. And I think that gives a fairly good lens in, into you know what this is and, and why it's important. And basically what we're trying to do and what we were able to do was as a decentralized community of, of builders and people who cared about building infrastructure and tooling for DAOs, um, we were able to, as a decentralized community, um, form and you know, have other people contribute capital and join us a, as part of the community and and then use that capital to uh, pay for expenses and to pay essentially pay people for the time and the work that they were putting in uh, to to helping us build this thing in in a fully uh, trust minimized decentralized way where we didn't have to um, have where basically the people that are contributing their capital never had to. Uh, give up custody of their capital until that capital was going to be spent on the thing that they had contributed uh, the capital um, in order to in order to do, and and that's mm -hmm. really at the crux of of what a CCO is, and I can describe um, in whatever level of detail is, is helpful how that works and and why that's possible. So in so let's simplify that for a minute, okay? Because I think for more of the inner crypto native crowd, that what that would make sense, okay? Let's talk about more of like the outside, non Moloch, non uh, Moloch. I mean, excuse me, uh, non MCon, non ETH Denver type of audience. Explain a CCO in like in eight words, okay? Eight to eight to twelve words. How like super simplified, right? And the yep. only reason I try to ask that, and the only reason I ask that, is because. There's concepts of like ICOs, STOs, this CO, that OO, 
all these different acronyms, right? So I really want to understand and differentiate it. So it's super, super clear. Yep. So um, <clears throat> I think it, it may not be the most direct analogy, but I think the simplest way to describe it is basically as, as Kickstarter, but with two changes, where the first difference is that instead of like um, some socks or whatever you might get as a reward for your contribution on Kickstarter, you get um, tokens associated with the project you're contributing to. So that's difference number one. And difference number two is that um, when you make your contribution, uh, your contribution actually is something that happens over time. And you can actually pull back if at any point you see something going not the way you expected. Um, so in uh, a big problem okay. with Kickstarter, for example, is that you like send in your money and then you get like sporadic updates and you can't do anything about it. They have your money. And then maybe two years later, you get a, an email saying, oh no, this like ended up not working and we're gonna have to shut down the whole project. Or maybe it was in a like straight up explicit scam <laughs> or maybe it was yeah. just like something didn't quite work and, and things changed. Um, in a CCO, when you give your money, you can always take it back up in, until the point that is actually spent on the thing that you meant it to be spent on. Got it. What's up, guys? Adam Levy here. I wanted to take a quick pause to give some love to Coinvise, our NFT sponsor who's making this episode a reality. On Coinvise, you can create a personal or community-owned social token on Ethereum. Coinvise also helps you create incentives through token rewards and bounties, NFT business models, and bot integrations for Discord. Discover more by visiting coinvise.co today. All right, back to the episode. So, okay, let's uh, let's talk this through for a minute, okay? So let's say someone's trying to raise a million dollars, okay? A hundred people, 120 people, whatever. A bunch of people come in, they contribute. That organization sets out milestones uh, to reach transparently and how much capital is going to reach is going to be needed per milestone. Is that how you're imagining it? So everything's laid out transparently. And if they don't execute on those milestones, basically the money is returned or the person has the will to self take, like to take it back, right? Pull out as, yep. as they would like on their, on their terms at their, at their discretion. So super low risk. Um, okay. Interesting. So then why don't you think more people have done this? Like, why don't you think, cause I know, I know Dow house experimented with this model uh, to do the house, house token, H A U S right. House token. Okay. I think it's like German. I always think to, to <laughs> it is German. We probably yeah. could say house, but we yeah. just say house. Yeah. So wh why don't you think more people have done this? And I guess it's also part of the reason why you're kind of like publicly sharing it. But like, why do you think people have reverted more to ICOs versus an experimentative model like this? Because it feels similar to an ICO, but more transparent and with the ability to kind of pull out if you're not happy. Yeah, right. That's another excellent, excellent analogy. Um, I think there's there's probably many reasons. One one being uh, the like foundational tools to do this are or like is, is essentially using Moloch DAOs. And mm -hmm. DAO House, at least as far as I know, is one of the only um, projects that is kind of centered around providing interfaces and tools for Moloch DAOs. So mm -hmm. not a lot of other projects kind of have the the you know expertise and, and knowledge built up over how to 
how to work with Moloch DAOs uh, like we mm -hmm. do. And then we haven't really pushed this and like made it more possible um, for Got other it. people as, as much as we Got could. It. Another big reason though, <clears throat> is that there it's just really damn attractive to maintain control um, as a founder. Um, I think it's the same reason that we see a lot of a lot of DAO projects maintaining a, a multi-sig that controls the treasury with just a few people on the multi-sig rather than the, the actually the entire community having power over over what happens in the multi-sig direct actual like non-custodial control mm -hmm. um it's just really attractive to it, it's really hard to break out of the web 2 mindset even if you want to do this and do something in a community way it's really really attractive and uh really difficult to to just make a decision to give up power um so, even if, so if, if you, yeah go no ahead. go ahead go ahead sorry it's just it, that that's a that's a fundamentally different thing that a lot of people yeah. are very not used to and it's it's a very big change and, and so i think that's why we haven't seen a lot of people making that choice so you're right like as this narrative of decentralization kind of like gets stronger and stronger by the day okay more more founders more people are building towards that ethos control is like a very underlying ethos that people take care of, take with them I, I feel like to what they do like that's how society has been constructed that's how yep. we're, we're raised like that's what we know innately you know like we know growing up like there is control in the classroom you know in elementary school you know there's authority there's a leader there's all these things and now to come into web 3 you're kind of trying to like re-engineer and rewire how people think how people work uh, in a very uncomfortable way which i love that but when you're building a project you raise money through a cco okay what's stopping someone from actually just changing their mind and pulling out rather than just pulling out based off they don't like the progress of the project right so what if you get the wrong stakeholders in your cco okay and they actually fund, they help bring this thing to life. And they're like, actually, wait, never mind. Can they do that? Can they pull out? Or is there any like, is there any like friction on the funders end as well for pulling out? Like, how does that work? So there's, uh, there's a couple things. One, the first in general, there's nothing stopping them. Um, mm -hmm. It's part of the part of the design. So it's very much the case that if you have somebody who shows up and says, hey, I want to want to contribute and then they contribute there's nothing stopping them from uncontributing later okay um however as so part of the one thing that i have haven't fully talked about uh had, I, I don't think we've made fully clear yet is like during the during the process of the cco you described it as kind of a milestone thing that is sort of one option for doing it another is just kind of as money is needed and that's really up to the the like core project team that you know, started the project and up to like mutually between them and the the people who contributed capital uh -huh. for to agree on um is you know how those milestones are are conducted or, or how the the capital is sort of spent over time or, or you know what what the framework for that is but whatever that framework is um as capital is spent so it let's say it's let's say it's eth that's the capital Everybody puts ETH into the DAO. They get, uh, you know, their their claim on that ETH that they can they can redeem and leave with at any point. Um, as we we're saying, as ETH leaves the DAO is spent to build the thing that everybody wants to build, it gets replaced 
via a process that we call transmutation. Basically gets transmuted into the, the tokens that represent the project. Mm -hmm. So if I were to contribute ETH and then like a day later say, I actually, I, I, I changed my mind. I can take my ETH back and it would be 100% mm -hmm. ETH. But mm -hmm. let's say it's two months down the line and the project has proceeded and some of that ETH has been spent. Now, if I say, if I change my mind, now what's going to happen is I get, let's say, 75% ETH, 75% of my ETH back. And instead of the, the remaining 25%, I get a, a proportional amount of the project tokens. So if I don't believe in that in the project anymore, then I might still make that still make that decision and kind of take my roughly 25% haircut. But that could also that potentially could be a a reason for me not to to leave at that point and just to say, you know what, I'm going to see this through, and and hope that the the value of my tokens uh, increases or hope that the just the, the societal value, the thing that I contributed to, was worth it. Got it. Um, but Makes the truth sense. is that there's no there's by design, there's flexibility, lots of flexibility and and uh, support for or power given to contributors, uh, capital Got contributors. It. Got it. What is the legality around this? So that's something we are we are exploring. Uh, there, it's as <laughs> this is the case with a lot of the stuff is pretty big gray area. Um, what we our hypothesis or maybe a, a good way, and I, I apologize, this is not a direct answer to this question. I don't think sure. I can. I don't think I can give one, and I probably shouldn't give one. Which I'd assume, <laughs> also by the way, because like a lot of this stuff is gray area, right? Yeah. So, but but go ahead, continue. So like I'm not a lawyer. This is definitely not like legal opinion in, in any way. But our right. hypothesis is that CCOs accomplish many, or maybe even all, of the goals of the existing. Uh, like SEC and other sort of regulatory requirements, mm -hmm. um, because they are they institute such strong protections for capital contributors, or you could you could call them investors, or whatever you want to call them. Um, basically, the the point of all of these mechanisms and requirements and uh, disclosures and all of that is to make sure is to ensure that the the team that is raising the money doesn't have a significant uh, um, information advantage, that there's no information asymmetry between the team and the people that that gave them money to do the thing. That that gap, that information asymmetry is what scammers can exploit to, to just steal all, all people's money. It's it's what makes, uh, it what, it's what adds to a lot of the risk of giving somebody your money to, to go build something. And so it, it, because of the strong protections that CCOs offer capital contributors, we think, um, so that's one reason that, that we mm -hmm. think uh, CCOs are, are really great and fit really well with the, the goals of our, our existing legal framework. Um, the, other, the other reason is that by definition, the, the people that are actually using the funds it, it's not a very clear distinction between you know, the broader community and the people that are using the funds. It's a, it's a decentralized community that is making decisions collectively over how to spend the funds and what to spend them on, rather than a CEO and a board of directors and maybe a CFO making those decisions and actually executing those actions. Got it. Got it. 
when someone asks you, what are the downsides of doing this? Because it sounds good. Like it sounds super cool. It sounds like incentives are aligned. It sounds like an ethical way to kind of approach uh, a, a funding and be experimentative. And usually experimentation is highly rewarded in crypto. Um, but what is the downside of doing something like this? Well, I mean, you identified one earlier, uh, which is right. that people who contributed capital could decide tomorrow right. or in a month or whatever that they 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 change their mind. Um, so if if a if a project team if a if a community uh, is feels like that's a big risk and they don't want to take that risk, then they might have to take a different route. Um, the flip side, though, is that because it's so much easier, there's so much less risk for contributors to contribute capital. Um, you typically project teams or decentralized communities have access to more capital than they would otherwise. So it may be possible to attract a little bit more capital than you actually really need to give yourself a buffer in case uh, people leave. And that can always be refunded at the end if if you sort of meet your goals without needing that additional buffer. What about for projects that don't want tokens? What if like there's a lot of like, uh, for example, a lot of projects that raise a private round of funding, okay? Um, and they don't really disclose token warrants, uh, side letters, any of those things. Rather, they focus on building product and then want to decentralize, yeah. quote unquote, right? Do you guys cater to those projects as well? How does that work exactly? Yeah. So, so the that that process of transmutation that I described is mm -hmm. we think that is a really important part of a CCO, but it is not hundred percent required for that mechanism or a similar mechanism to be attractive to some some community or some some project team or or project. So you could do you basically take the CCO framework and mechanism and you can rip out the token and you can rip out the transmutation. And essentially what you get is roughly the same thing, except for one big difference, obviously there is no token. And what that means is that there is still some, or there's there's more trust um, that is required from the capital contributors towards the towards the community or towards the, the project team. If they, if they're, if there's an expectation of future returns of some sort or future value, then without the token, the there's a there's not a direct link from what is what was provided now today versus what could be coming down the line in, in the future. The token is what provides that direct link. Um, mm -hmm. But if you're a project that doesn't ever want a token, and maybe you're just maybe you're a public goods kind of project, and mm -hmm what you're asking for is not anything that's going to build something that's going to return value to, to somebody down the line, then you could absolutely do without the token part of a CCO. And that would work really well. Um, there's probably other, other mechanisms that you could kind of add on to create other, to like bridge, bridge the gap, like the token does in, in the basic version of a CCO. Mm -hmm. um, the other option is that if you think you might want a token in the future, what you can do with a CCO is actually create a token and customize it, customize the token contract itself so that it it uh, is not transferable until some date down the line. So you don't act, you know, like it. everybody has a token, has the representation of what they contributed, but it has no utility. Nobody can use it until some point in the future. Got it. Got it. Makes sense. So the big question here, 
okay, is how does this apply to creators now? Okay. We talked about you building products. We talked about this new fundraising vehicle and this new uh, experimentative collaborative way to raise capital and do so very transparently. How does this apply to creators? Keep in mind, a lot of creators are issuing social tokens and using the liquidity from the tokens bought to kind of like operate the creator economy. They're issuing mirror campaigns and crowdfunding based off a blog post of an idea that they want to bring to life. Um, they're either selling NFTs as membership badges, right, to create and bootstrap this community. They're doing all sorts of things to kind of bring capital into their life, to own their creator economy, remain independent, and build strong communities and utility around their on-chain assets. How does this apply to creators and why is this better than what's yeah. currently out there? So I think there's going to be a, or there there is a, a crop of creators that, um, to whom this, this does not apply. Okay. And it would not apply to them because those are creators where the work they're doing is an individual expression of, of themselves. Um, maybe they're a, a musician or some kind of visual artist or really whatever it is, but like what they're doing is is and should be and like would be would be less valuable if it wasn't under their own control right it should be under their control like they should have creative control over what they're doing as an artist and um, the quality of what they're doing the importance the cultural resonance of what they were doing would be diminished if they tried to decentralize the actual process of of making or creating the thing that they're creating so for them it makes a lot less sense to try to uh, raise funding to allow themselves to do that in a way that kind of requires a much more decentralized process. Got it. Interesting. Hmm. Okay. But I, I think what that what that tells us is that if if the creator is somebody that is, whether they're doing that today or not, if they are interested in expanding the set of people with whom they are collaborating with as peers to create whatever they're creating, mm -hmm. then a CCO would make sense because then it would be something that would be governed by and controlled by and under the power of a wider set of people than just themselves. Mm -hmm. hmm. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. You know, I could see this coming into play I remember um, a while ago, okay, Justin Blau uh, wanted to create, I think this was back in 2017, 18, like the first crowdfunded music festival, okay, where the lineup was picked by the crowdfunders, the location, the vendors, the everything, okay, and I could see a, like a CCO like this being the right model for crowdfunding a beast of like an event like that because there's multiple legs, there's multiple things going on. Um, I could also see it working for, let's say, Daniel Allen, for example. Okay, and not that Daniel Allen is using this, rather referencing his the the crowdfund example that he did on Mirror that a lot of people know him for for raising 180k in like what less than 48 hours and in the blog post writing the steps that he's going to be taking where the capital is going to be allocated to and basically us treating it like a kickstarter campaign rather we're not getting socks we're getting like co-ownership in his ep right yep. now 
I give this creator my money, whatever the amount is, doesn't matter, with the expectation, you know, that we'll get the CP and that we'll get royalties. And but I, I guess like it's very it's very modular for like now that I'm thinking, I'm like talking it through out loud, right? It's very modular for any type of funding campaign per se, right? Um hmm. any any specific examples come to mind, like on the creator side of things? Um to be a lot of creators honest, are like, I, Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so where my um where I have spent most of my kind of mental cycles is less on yeah. on the creator side and more on the, right. the like you know, builder side. Uh, obviously, sure. there's there's heavy overlap between the two, but the frame that I tend yeah. to use is is builder. But that doesn't that certainly doesn't mean that that it can't work or doesn't make sense or doesn't apply to to the the creator frame. Um, and I actually I probably want to like, walk back a little of what I said. I think your example was a good counter like counter argument to what I was saying about a CCO not applying to an individual artist mm. or an individual creator. Um, okay. I think some of the advantages of, of a CCO are that the, the funding is under, or the decisions about what to do with the funding and how to spend the funding are under control of a decentralized community of people. Mm -hmm. um, okay. That's so that's one big advantage, but the other big <clears throat> advantage is that, um, is that the, the investors or the capital contributors or the 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 donors or whatever how whatever they're called in that particular instance they get a lot of protections so even if there's mm -hmm. an individual creator that is basically promising i'm going to make something i'm going to make a music video i'm going to i'm going to produce a movie i'm going to write an album i'm going to um, make a sculpture whatever it is mm -hmm. if there's a so they could do that in a way let, so let's say there um, there's a token involved and the token mm -hmm. is meant to represent the future value of of the album that okay. uh, maybe royalty rights on, on the album or something. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, people could could contribute funds and then as as the artist is, is working on that album, let's say and this is a gross simplification of the album, Sure. making process but as they complete each song uh they basically say okay i i'm i'm now going to pay myself out of this this pool of funds that you guys all contributed um mm -hmm. if i finish one out of 10 songs i'm going to pay myself 10 percent, and then two out of 10 songs now i'll get the next 10 percent. got it as those songs are are getting produced the people who contributed the capital would have some visibility or into what those songs are, how the process is going, how long it's taking. And if, say, it looks like the artist is stuck <laughs> and the album is not going to get completed, they could always walk away with the remainder of, of their funds and kind of cut, uh, cut their losses at, at less it. than they otherwise would be. Got it. Got it. Makes sense. Interesting. So... What's the timeline? Like, when are we going to see more and more communities, you think, attempt a CCO? Uh, I know you guys had a, a successful crowdfund uh, for the house token. Um, what is the timeline for this stuff? What are you thinking? When are we going to see this stuff more in action? Because this is very premature, premature very early. Um, yeah. Walk me through that. Like, what's the plan of attack here? I would say, so there, there's, there's probably a few different phases. Um, okay. 
phase one is we're we're working on um, a an updated version of something that we've been calling the the yeeter, which allows people to just yeet funds into a particular place yeah. <laughs> and, and then uh, get something back. Uh, to date, okay. that yeeter has just been like people send funds into a multisig and they basically are trusting the operator to to do the right mm -hmm. thing, either deploy a DAO later or uh, send them a token later, much in, like very similar to a mirror fundraise kind of thing. Sure. Uh, but we're updating that to use something that's somewhat akin to the CCO mechanic or really like the first part of it. So when you send funds into this contract, instead of basically getting back nothing at first, you actually get shares in a DAO instantaneously, instantaneously immediately get shares in a DAO. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that is going to be a big catalyst when when that is, is more publicly and, and widely available, because it's going to lo way lower the barrier for projects to use that kind of just very simple fundraising kind of kind of process. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, less for the the people who are raising the funds and more for people who are contributing the funds, because suddenly, mm -hmm. if they have shares in the DAO and can can rage quit those funds out anytime they want, just like in a CCO, then their risk level is way lower and their barrier for deciding to contribute funds is is much lower. Got it. So that's kind of phase one, and then phase two is more some of the some of the tools that all that facilitate uh, the transmutation stuff. So when you start to expand that yeeting kind of thing from just the just the sending funds into now this process of of uh, you know more slowly spending the funds and the ability mm -hmm. to to transmute the funds into the project token over time, um, that'll probably be. So I think the phase one. And these are not official phases, but phase phase one yeah, is yeah. probably um, like roughly around East Denver quarter Q1 of, of 2022. Cool. And then the second phase is probably like in the summer, or maybe uh, maybe the fall, depending on how much like immediate demand there is for us to, to spend time mm -hmm. building this stuff versus um, fitting in and alongside everything else we're working on. Amazing. Spencer, I think that's a great place to end off as well. Uh, before I let you go, where can we find more about you, more about your project, more about CCOs, et cetera, et cetera? Give us a show. Yeah. Um, so starting with the the CCO thing. So that's we're going to have an article, like uh, like I was saying earlier, that is going to be published. <clears throat> might be later this week or early next. So that'll be to our... Um, we haven't made the jump to Mirror yet. So that'll be on our on our Substack. Cool. Uh, so that's dowhouse.substack.com. And then uh, everything else about Dowhouse, uh, the best place to start is dowhouse.club. And then from there, you can cool. check out the, the actual application, come into Discord, uh, check out our Twitter, check out our documentation, all that. And then me personally, best place is on, on Twitter at uh, Spengra, uh, S-P-E-N-G-R-A-H. Nice. Cool, man. Thank you for your time, Spencer. Thank you for being on. Thank you for being a part of season four. Uh, and I hope to do this again soon. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Thanks, Adam. Really appreciate you having me on. This was a lot of fun. You got it.